treasures of my God and King. Lift up your voice and let us sing. Alleluia, alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden The main message or the big idea of this passage is this. Sin leads to death, but the compassion of God raises the dead to new life. Well, good morning. Welcome to WSBC. It's great to see everyone here, and it's a privilege to be worshiping with you. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, as we sang about in the preparation song. Uh, we also looked at Luke 15 last week, the first few verses. Today we'll be in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32, about the second half of the chapter. As I reviewed the passage this week, I, a few questions came to mind. I wonder if it matters what we really do. Does it matter what we do with our lives? If we cheat at work, does it really matter? Is it really a big deal? If we take our mask down a little bit on the subway, does that really matter? Does anybody really care what we do? If we tell a little lie or we curse at someone under our breath where they can't hear it, does that really matter? Does it matter if we fantasize about a sexual encounter with someone that's not our spouse? Does that really matter? Often many of us believe the lie that these things do not matter. But we know that they do. As we look at Luke 15 this morning, we're going to see that the things that we do matters a lot to God. When we sin, it matters to Him. But it brings up another question, how does God then deal with us in our sin? It seems like many believe, and the way we live, we believe that God rewards good and punishes bad, right? If I follow the rules, then I'll get good things coming my way. If I follow God's rules, then He'll give me good health. He'll give me a good job, a good spouse, all these good things, right? Or if I'm bad, then God will punish me with poor health and a mean boss and a broken umbrella on a rainy day, right? That's what happens. But it's not, actually. In our passage today, we're going to see that the bad things that we do, our sin, is really bad. That it is taken serious. It does really matter to God. And we're also going to see that His response to our sin, the way He deals with us as sinners is not some kind of karma where sending good to the good people and bad things to the bad people. But actually, He responds with grace and compassion. He Himself comes to meet us and to bring us into His family. So let's read 
Luke 15, starting in verse 11. It's a parable of the prodigal son. Please follow along as I read. And he, that is Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He is lost. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word to us today. I believe the main message or the big idea of this passage is this. Sin leads to death, but the compassion of God raises the dead to new life. A little bit of background before we dive in here. Last week, we looked at the first part of Luke 15, and Jesus in the whole chapter of Luke, is responding to the Pharisees and scribes who were grumbling. Luke 15, 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus responded with a parallel parable about a man who lost one of his 100 sheep 
and a woman who lost one of her ten coins. And the point of those parables is that God produces repentance in everyone who believes. And we also saw that there was great rejoicing in heaven over people who repented, over the ones returned, the sheep that was found and the coin that was found. In today's passage, Jesus completes his response to the grumbling Pharisees and scribes with this parable of a man with two sons. It's similar to the previous parables in that something is lost. Here the man has two sons and he loses one of them. The younger son leaves. And the first point, the first section that we're going to look at is verses 12 to 16. And this is the downward spiral, the downward progression of the younger son. And this is summarized with point number one, which is sin leads to death. Let's take a closer look at the downfall of this younger son as we consider how sin leads to death. Verse 12 says, The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So we see that he demands from his father. He says, give me. Give me the inheritance while you're still alive. He's essentially saying that he wishes his father was dead. That he would be better off if the father died today. This is a complete rejection of the father's authority. And it's deeply disrespectful. It's shameful for him to make this request of his father while he's alive. This is rejection and rebellion against his father. Now we see that the father does what he says. He he divided his property between them. And then in verse 13, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So very soon afterwards, he liquidated what he needed to. He sold things so he could have a money bag, a bag full of money to take with him made sure all the property he was able to carry, and he left. He goes to a far country. And the people listening to this, as Jesus told it, the Israelites would have understood far country to mean a Gentile country. So it's not part of Israel, it's not a friendly place, but it's outside. It's others, it's foreigners. This would have been a step downward, a a shameful thing for him to move to this place and to do this with his inheritance. Verse 13 continues to say that he squandered his property in reckless living. So his attitude was eat, drink, and be merry. Gambe, he doesn't invest in his future. He doesn't buy property there and start a business. No, he lives for today. He lives in the present. And he's blatantly sinful. We see later in verse 30 that the older brother knows that he's living a reckless life that includes prostitutes. He's acting immorally on many levels. Now in verse 14, we see that it finally catches up to him, or at least it begins to. He runs out of money. He spent everything, and now there's a famine in the land. And it says he began to be in need. So he does what he can. Verse 15 says he goes and he hires himself out to one of the citizens of the country, which was another shameful step to now going from being the son of a wealthy Israelite to being a servant of a foreigner. And not only that, this man sends him into the field to feed pigs. Now, pigs were an unclean animal to the Israelites. They would not have had pigs. So for an Israelite to then go into the field to care for pigs 
was another shameful thing, another downward step in this spiral. So he's watching over the pigs in verse 16, this final step that we see here. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So not only is he watching over pigs, these unclean animals, he's near them, he's caring for them, now he wants to eat with them. This is completely disgusting. This is appalling to the people who are listening. Now for us living in China, we think, what's the big deal with pigs? I mean, there's lots of pork around. I've eaten pig brain at a hot pot meal. And it doesn't seem like the pods are that big of a deal. It sounds like a plant. I mean, I'm not sure why this is that appalling to to us. Now, a parallel might be, think of someone squandering all that they have, and they end up in the place where their only option for food is uh, one of those brown barrels on the side of the road. They see the, the food waste, and they think, you know, that might be where I have to get nutrients. What if, I, what if I had a spoonful? That's disgusting. We don't even want to talk about it. That's repulsive to think about eating from the food waste in our city. But that kind of disgusting idea is where this young, younger son was at. He had gone that low. Imagine someone in our city thinking about eating food waste. That's where the younger son was. He had gone that far down that now he's thinking of doing the unthinkable, eating with a pig, sharing a meal with this unclean animal. Now the point of this seeing this downward downward spiral of the younger son This progression of going from the son of a rich man to sharing a meal with a pig is that we would see that this is the downward spiral of our own sin. Our sin leads to death. The younger son is near death at this point. He has nothing. No one gave him anything, it says at the end of verse 16. He's rebelled. He's gone on his own. And now the next step for him is death. Sin will lead to death. Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. It seemed right to the younger son to seek joy and fulfillment by taking his inheritance, leaving his father behind, and doing what he wanted. But it led him near to death. He's one step away from death. He's without friends. He has nothing. Also in James chapter 1, it says this in verse 14. James 1 verse 14, but each person is tempted when he, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we see the progression in James 1 of temptation. Lured and enticed by his own desire, desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, is death. 
brings forth death. So we see that progression that James talks about here with the younger son. The desire for freedom and independence from the father. The desire to to leave and experience excitement and joy from partying and doing what he wanted. But now he's facing death. So our sin leads to death. And another thing we should see from this passage is not just that sin leads to death, but that sin is rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion against God. The younger son rebelled against his father in leaving. He shamefully denied the authority and lordship of his father, just as we, when we sin, deny the authority and lordship of God in our lives. We are rebels, and we are all rebels at heart. Our rebellion comes from our corrupted hearts. If you have a computer with a hard drive that is corrupted, it means it's not fixable. And our hearts are corrupted in that same way. Another way to say this is that we are depraved. Depraved or depravity refers to our spiritual corruption. We are unfixable on our own. Our hearts, without God, are beyond repair. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, unpacks this quite well. Romans 3, chapter, uh, verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We can see in Romans 3 the downward steps. No one is righteous. No one seeks God. We cannot do it on our own. By ourselves, in our natural position, we are depraved. We are completely against God. Deep down inside of us, there's not good. Now, we hope and we wish that deep down there was good. We want to be good on the inside. We want to be able to say, that, ah, oh, yeah, deep down I'm good. Deep down I'll make good decisions. But the Bible tells us deep down we are not good. Deep down, our hearts want to rebel against God. And we want to take the path of destruction. We want to head toward death with a smile on our face. That is what our sin does to us. It leads to death. So this week, today, examine yourself. Ask God to help you see a little clearer the depth of the sin in your heart. Reread this passage And look at the younger son. Think about how that is a reflection, a picture of your own life in sin. Also read Romans chapter 3 to get a better understanding of our depravity and the hope that we have in Christ. But don't overlook, don't cover up or avoid your sin. Don't hide from it or sugarcoat it or try to say, oh, well, I'm actually kind of good. The Bible says we are completely depraved, that we rebel against God, and in that rebellion, it leads to death.
But thankfully, it doesn't end there. This parable does not finish there with the young, younger son dying next to the pigs. Let's continue to see what happens. There's hope for the younger son, just as there is hope for us as well. So our sin leads to death, but, point number two, the compassion of God raises the dead. The compassion of God raises the dead. We are dead in sin, but the compassion of God raises the dead. Let's look at verse 17 to 24. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger? Now, in this section, there is, there's three times where it uses the word but. Verse 17, verse 20, and verse 22. If you're taking notes, I recommend circling those. Verse 17, in verse 20, and verse 22. These are important shifts or turns in the narrative. The younger son is heading one direction. The but indicates a turn from that direction. He's heading toward death, but there is a turn. The word but there in those three cases is very important. The first one, we see that it says, but he came to himself. So this deviation from the current direction is that he came to himself. He saw clearly. He came to his senses, other versions say. It's like he woke up from a dream. He suddenly was thinking clearly. And as we consider that, we should remember the parables from last week. We talked about how God is the one who produces repentance in all people. God is the one who opens our eyes. He brings us from death to life to be able to come to our senses or come to ourself. To see our situation clearly is a gift from God. He's the one who initiates that. So the younger son, by God's work, finally sees his current situation clearly. And verse 17, he realizes he's going to die. But his father has servants who are, have enough to eat. They have enough to survive on. So he thinks, why should I die here when I could go back? Verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he makes a plan for himself. He's going to go back, admit that he was wrong, tell his dad he's not worthy to be a son, and ask if he can work for him. A couple of things to notice from this. One is that he knows the father enough to know he's compassionate and kind. He knows that the father, or at least he believes the father will at least listen to him. He knows the father to be kind. The other thing is that he's developed his own plan of salvation. He wants to justify himself or save himself through this plan. It depends on the mercy of his father, but he also has this plan of how this could work out. To go back and say he's not worthy to be a son, but he can change his status from being a son to being a servant. And he's, he's good with that. That's acceptable to him. It seems reasonable. 
So this is what he would do. And I wonder if some of the people listening would have thought, yeah, that, that is a reasonable idea. That, that that would be very merciful of the Father, actually, to accept him as a servant. Because the Father has reasons to kick him out or to crush him for the, the amount of shame that this younger son has brought on the Father. The, the Father could do, uh, do damage to him, and it would, be, it would be okay. It would be right in some eyes. So this is reasonable that he would be merciful enough to bring him on as a servant. So let's see what happens. How does this play out? Verse 20, it says, He goes to the Father. He arose and came to His Father. But, here's the second use of that word. Verse 20. But, while He was still a long way off, His Father saw Him and felt compassion and ran and embraced Him and kissed Him. I wonder if the father normally looked down the road. Or as some have suggested, maybe he was always looking down the road, or often did, hoping to see his son. However it happened, he looked and recognized, that is my son coming up the road. He's a long way off, it says, and his father recognized him. The father could have gone to him and crushed him. Some of those listening to Jesus at this point may have thought that would have been appropriate. The Son had shamed and humiliated the Father in every possible way, and now He has the audacity to come back. But instead, we see what the Father did. He saw Him and He felt compassion. And He runs to Him, hugs Him and kisses Him. The Son would not have smelled very pleasant. He had been spending time with pigs and he had walked all the way home, but it didn't matter to the father. He still hugged him and kissed him. Can you imagine a greater example of love? I cannot picture better love than this father loving his son to run to him, the son who had done so much to bring shame to the father had rejected him and rebelled against him completely, and the Father ran to him. The Son did not deserve this treatment, but the Father gave it anyways. And in the same way, we deserve to be crushed for the depth, for the depravity of our sin before God. And yet, God in Jesus came near to us. He draws near to us even now. In our mess, in our sin, He comes near and He offers a relationship with Him, with Himself. We get God as we come to Him. It's not things. Notice the Father didn't come with a bag of money to give to His Son. He didn't give Him more stuff. The Father came personally to show love and care to His Son. He, did, he desires the Son. He's not concerned with the things the Son wasted. He desires the Son. God does not deal with us in a karma kind of way, giving good to those who are good and bad things to those who are bad. But He graciously gives Himself to all people in spite of our sin. 
He comes to us to make us new, not to reward us or punish us based on our works, based on what we do. As Romans 5, 8 says, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's Romans 5, 8. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ made the sacrifice for our sin while we, while we were still in sin. Not when we came back, not when we were cleaned up, while we were still ugly and smelly. So after the loving welcome of the Father, we see in verse 21, the Son launches into His plan. I'm guessing He was rehearsing this the whole way home. So He was ready when He, he saw the Father. Verse 21 says, The Son said to Him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before You. I am no longer worthy to be called Your Son. He starts off with confessing that he sinned. And this is really good confession. He says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He admits that he was wrong. He has done wrong and he sees it clearly now. But the second sentence, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is where he launches into his salvation plan. He's telling his father, here's how we can address this. Here's how we can fix this. You, I'm not worthy to be your son, and you call me a servant, is what he's planning to say. We know from earlier what his plan is. But what happens? Verse 22. Here's the, the other use, the third use of the word, but. But the father said to his servants. The father cuts him off. He doesn't let him finish his plan. He interrupts it. He's not having of this, any of this not worthy to be your son. But immediately he says to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So the father hears him say, I'm not worthy to be your son, and, and cuts him off. He says, No. We are going to have a party. It's time to celebrate. And the reason is, the key verse there is 20, verse 24. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He rejects the son's salvation plan and replaces it with his own. Now it's true that the son was not worthy to be called a son. He wasn't. He had disgraced the father. Everything he had done made him unworthy to be called the father's son. But the father establishes him as a son anyways. In spite of his unworthiness, the father makes him a son, not a servant. If the younger son had become a servant, if the father had agreed to the younger son's plan, then the younger son would have been doing something to repay the wrong that he had done. It would have been a form of punishment that he was demoted from son to servant. But he would have been working to make right what he had done wrong. But the father was having none of this. He was not going to let the son 
do some kind of work to make this right or to try to pay back what he had lost. The father is bearing all the loss for what the son has done. The father is the one who's taking on himself. He's carrying the load of what the son wasted. The son is doing no work to pay back the father. The father is taking all the payment. And he does not allow his son to even finish this plan of being able to take some of that payment. This means the father forgives the younger son out of compassion. It's the compassion of the father that brings this son back to life. Just as it is the compassion of God that raises the dead. The father's raising the son from the dead. He's almost physically dead. He's definitely relationally dead. Relationally, he's dead to the father. And he's the one who put himself there. The father could have kicked him out, but instead he gives him life. He brings him back to the family. He gives him status as a true son, a son that's worth celebrating. Now for us today, we need to recognize that it is God who has compassion. He's the one who brings us from death to life. And His love and compassion for us is not based on what we do, either good or bad. We have nothing to contribute to God's salvation plan. It is completely and fully dependent on His grace. So how do we apply this? What do we take away from this section? I think the application from this is that we repent early and often. We repent early and often. I think I've shared this before, but I find it very useful. A coach in, my, in middle school gave our football team a game plan. And the game plan was very simple. He said, we're going to score early and often. Early and often was the game plan for scoring. And no matter what you're doing, you don't have to know anything about football. No matter what you're doing in sports, if you score early and often, you're probably going to do okay. You have a good chance of winning if you do that. So this is our application from this section today. is is simple in that similar way. Repent early and often. Now we repent early, meaning if you're not a Christian today, then you're on the path toward death. The Bible says that you're not heading toward bad things in this world, but you're heading toward death for eternity. The Bible says if anyone dies in their sin, meaning they have not repented to God and believed in Jesus as their Savior, if a person dies in their sin and they spend eternity in hell, that is forever and ever, in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal torment as punishment and payment for sin. But, but God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus to live a perfect life. He had no sin at all. And He came so that He could die in the place of God's people. He died on the cross, and as He did, God put on Him the punishment that was supposed to be for God's people, for their sin. So by repenting of our sin, admitting that we are wrong, 
and turning to Jesus and believing in Him as our Savior and Lord, then any person can be raised from death to life, can move from lost to found. So friends, if you are not a Christian, repent today. Repent early that you might be found by the Lord and be brought from death into life in Christ. We also want to repent often. As believers, we still sin because our sin nature is not completely removed yet. We're still tempted by the thrill of sin. We still have the desire to rebel. Now for those of us who are truly in Christ, we don't die again or become lost again like this younger son. But we still have sin in our lives that needs to be addressed. And we do this by repenting often. Our repentance has two parts. The first is confessing that our sin is evil and it is rebellion against God. And then turning to God, asking God to change our heart that we might not sin or even desire to sin anymore. This is how we repent often. We repent early and we repent often. It should be a common thing for us as Christians that we would repent. We recognize that we're sinning and we confess that to God and turn from that sin to God, trusting Him to change us. Now, I believe repenting is also a team sport. It's good to share what we're repenting about with other people. It's not healthy for us to just repent, just confess to God our sin as we notice it by ourselves. It's good to be repenting to God and sharing with others what's going on, where we're repenting. This is helpful for everyone who's involved. It's encouraging to hear about how other people are struggling and how they're trusting God with those struggles, how they're working through sin in their lives and attempting and trying to trust God to change them and, the, and to live rightly. Repenting and sharing with others what we're repenting of also has a soul-cleansing effect. It's like washing our hands or taking a shower. It, it cleans us in a way like no other way. It's hard to describe, but it's so helpful and encouraging. It's, it fills, fills us up when we share with other people what we have repented to God of. It's not comfortable, but it is so helpful, and it is so good for our souls to do. And we're called by God to do this. We're called to share with others about how we're confessing, what we have confessed of to the Lord. So we live as true sons and daughters of God as we repent often. And we do that as often as we recognize sin in our lives. Now we don't repent so that God gives us good things or we don't repent so that we don't get punished. And we repent because we are sons and daughters of God. He has raised us from the dead because we are His children. It's out of gratitude for the salvation that we have in Jesus. And it's out of love for God that we repent 
early and often. Now let's continue in this passage as the parable shifts from the younger son to the older son and his reaction to his brother's return. We'll see how God's compassion raises the dead to new life and that this new life is cause for joy. It's point number three. New life is cause for joy. New life is cause for joy. We'll look at verse 25 to the end of the chapter. It says, Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So we see the older brother has been working in the field, and as he returns, he hears the party going on where they're celebrating the younger brother. And of course, he's angry. I don't think we can blame him for being mad. It seems to make sense. He had watched his brother insult his father, gave him much grief, and now this younger brother has returned and his father's throwing him a party? How could he be throwing him a party? He should be throwing him out. And also remember the inheritance. We saw in verse uh, 11, verse 12, verse 11, verse 12, they divide the property between them. So the inheritance, the, the father's property, has already been divided between the two brothers. And the younger brother took his and wasted it. That means everything that's left is essentially the older brother's stuff. So that means as they party, they're using things that are really the older brother's stuff. The fattened calf that the younger brother is celebrating with, the older brother's like, that's, that's mine. How does he get to have that? And I don't. And it makes him even more angry. So he refuses to go in. And we see in verse 28 that the father comes out to him. This is the second time in this day that the father has gone out to meet one of his sons. And there's actually a lot of similarities between the two brothers. Let's notice what they are. They, they both receive their inheritance early. They can kind of gauge what's theirs. They both work for a man in the field. The younger son was working for the foreigner feeding pigs. The older son is working for the father. And on this day, they both approach the house. And they're met by their father. And they both have their own idea of salvation, their own plan 
for salvation. What's the older son's salvation plan? Let's look at his conversation, what he says to his father in verse 29. He says, Look, these many years I have served you, and I had never disobeyed your command. He's saying, I'm doing all the right things. I have been a perfect model son, serving you and never disobeying. I've always been right. I've always been good. But he continues, Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So he's saying here that I deserve a celebration for what I have done. I have worked hard and I have obeyed you and I deserve a celebration, but you have not given it to me. This reminds me a little bit of a dinner at my house as a kid. Many times as a kid, the question, at least in my mind, sometimes I would ask it is, how much do I have to eat in order to get dessert? You know, we were supposed to eat a certain amount of meat and vegetables, and they'd never tasted as good as dessert did. But if we didn't eat enough, we couldn't have dessert, but I don't want to volunteer to eat too much, and then I've, you know, eaten more of the broccoli than I wanted. I think we do this as well sometimes, uh, similar, similar ways. When we go to the gym, do you ever work out and you wonder, how long do I need to run on the treadmill to be able to eat whatever I want to afterwards? Can I, can I earn some dessert here? Um, if, you, if you measure the calories, it's really depressing. Um, and you laugh because you all know that. <laughs> but see, we do this too, and the sun is working and operating in that same mindset. I want to do the right things, do the things in order to get stuff from the Father. That's His salvation plan. His plan here is that He wants to be right, to be good in order to get the celebration. Now notice that He has not had the celebration yet. He says, you've never even let me celebrate with my friends. What do we know about celebration? The point here. Number three, new life is cause for joy. And we see also from the other parables before this that celebration comes when there's repentance. That means it reveals the condition of the older son's heart. He is not repentant. He's depending on himself, not on the father. There's not a reason to celebrate his new life because he has not entered into the new life. He's actually more similar to the younger brother at the beginning of the parable than what it seems. Now remember the context of this passage. Jesus is talking to, he's responding to the Pharisees and scribes as they're grumbling that Jesus is receiving and eating with sinners. So we can see that the Pharisees and scribes are represented by the older brother in this parable. They consider themselves to be following the law perfectly. They have worked hard to do everything right, and they feel they deserve God's blessing. They deserve good things. They deserve heaven from God because they have followed the laws perfectly. Now, we do this with God as well, sometimes not meaning to, but we think, you know, I've ser- I've, God, I've served you for so many years, and yet 
you still haven't given me whatever it is. Maybe some have served God for years and they're still single and they don't want to be. Many of us serve God for years and and feel like, oh, well, I'm not well or I don't have the joy that I thought you would give me. What is it that God has not done for you that you're tempted to feel like you deserve because of your service? We can become like the older brother, thinking that God owes us something because we have served God. We may even find ourselves mad, raging at God for not giving us what we deserve. Especially while we see less deserving people getting exactly what we want. They haven't served God the way I have, and yet they get that. That's what I want. That should have been mine. But how does the Father respond to this? Let's look at verse 31 and 32. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father responds to the older brother's complaint by telling him that he's playing the wrong game. It's not about doing and receiving. It's about knowing the father. It's about the relationship. The the older son's focused on the right action, eating just enough to get the dessert, doing just enough to get the celebration that he thinks he needs or wants. Yet the father is after the relationship. This is why it was important to the father to run to the younger son, not worrying about what he smelled like or looked like, but that he was home. The father's concerned with the relationship, not with the action, not with the service of what his sons do. Now notice that the older son is still outside the house. He's not come to the father to repent, but to get stuff. And as long as he stays outside the celebration in anger and sin, he's not a true son of the father as the younger son is now. The father is inviting him to enter into the celebration as a true son. Because this new life that comes through repentance is worth celebrating. It's the new life that is celebrating. New life is the cause for joy. So if you find yourself wanting to do the right things, that God would then give you a blessing, that God would give you salvation, then you are in danger of being like the older brother, on the outside, angry, still in sin, still lost. If the father had given the older son what he wanted, if he had given him a young goat to celebrate, what would the older son have done at the party? He could have sat there enjoying this little celebration with his friends, saying, I deserve this. I earned this. I worked hard to get here. I'm amazing. I'm wonderful. But what is the younger son saying at the celebration that he's at in this parable? He's sitting in the place of honor as the son of the father. He could be thinking, I don't deserve this. 
my father is amazing. My father is so compassionate. What a wonderful man to forgive me and to bring me here. You see, the focus is on the father. The focus is on the compassion, the mercy, the love of the father. Not on the younger son. The older son is still focused on himself. He wants the glory. He wants the praise. He wants to be able to say, I did this. And yet the true son says, the father did this. In the same way as people, if we want to work so that we can say, I did this, then we are wrong. We are like the older brother. The point is that God does this. He is the one who brings us from death to life. And it's that new life, it's that change, the repentance that is cause for joy. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper soon. And as we do, think about the celebration that the father threw for the younger son. That party that he initiated when the son came home. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we're picturing that meal together as true sons and daughters of the Lord, celebrating together, celebrating our salvation, His compassion, His mercy. Not because we worked to be here, not at all. Like it says in Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Other versions say filthy rags. Everything, even the good things we do, are like filthy rags. That's what we have to offer. But God is so good that He brings us in. And we can celebrate because Jesus died and was resurrected. He died and rose so that we might, through faith in Him, die to our sin and rise to new life. A new life that is cause for joy. So what do we do with this message as we leave here? One thing that we do is we reject religion. We reject the idea of doing things ourselves, working good works, good things, in order to follow rules or to earn something for ourselves. Just as the older brother, his service and celebration over the young goat was a it was a poor substitute for knowing and celebrating with the Father. If we follow rules, if we go through what we think is the right motions, maybe chanting or reaching some level of enlightenment, these are all poor substitutes for a relationship with God. We don't want to substitute something in place of a relationship, a real relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. So reject the idea of religion and embrace a relationship with God. Another thing, we should not think of God as an employer. God is not looking for servants. He's not looking for employees in His kingdom. And He doesn't pay out a salary for work done. He's all about making sons and daughters of those who are dead and lost. 
He doesn't give a salary, but He gives a full inheritance to all of His children, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 1. And thirdly, we celebrate, we should celebrate our new life and the new life of others. Our joy comes as we celebrate new life as God's children, just as a younger son did, going into the celebration. And we're also reminded of this new life and this joy that comes in the new life as we share in celebrating the new life of others as well, rejoicing with others as they become believers, getting to know people and their story and rejoicing to hear how God saved them. Members of WSBC, all the other members have gone from being dead to alive. Do you know that story? Have you talked to them, the other members, about how that happened? and what that was like for them. Spend some time to get to know people. Ask questions over lunch today about that process, about what it was like for them to go from dead to life. Here, and then rejoice, celebrate, bask in the joy of God bringing new life to people. Now, as I conclude, I want to urge you this morning to take the bulletin with you. We print the bulletins, not just so that you have during the service, but so that you can take and use it during the week. The order of service is meant to help you as you go through your quiet time. You spend some time with the Lord, praising Him in prayer, reading Scripture, responding to Scripture by confessing sin and repenting. Also, read the passage again. Take a look at your notes. Meditate on the Father's compassion for both of His sons. And think about how that points to God's compassion for you and His love for you. He runs to all of us, the sinners, in order to bring us to His table as His very own child. Let's pray. God, we are in awe of Your compassion and Your love for Your people. Help us to see you properly and to love you as you have loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.